So, um, so anyway, so we, we, so we told about seven plagues, and each time Pharaoh hardens his heart and refuses to let the people go. Um, and in the beginning of next week's Torah portion, we're going to have the Egyptians come to Pharaoh and say, just let him go. You're destroying Egypt. Egypt is getting destroyed. As you see, all their animals are gone. Um, some of the plagues were just painful or annoying, like the frogs, or they didn't have food, uh, water to drink, or the water also, the uh, Nile turned to blood that killed all the fish. Fish was an important part of their diet. They killed all the fish. There were no more fish. Um, there's no more animals. All the animals have died in the, um, in the, um, in the plague. There are um, the, um, all the trees are all torn down by the hail. So there is, um, as we'll see, the um, food will all be destroyed. Whatever is left on the ground will all be destroyed by the locusts. So they're running out of food. They're, they're, they're a lot of, there's a lot of damage. And there's, also, some of them are just painful. And so um, the Egyptians get upset, but Pharaoh continues to harden his heart again and again and again and again. And the question is, did Pharaoh really have free choice? And Maimonides says Pharaoh did have free choice originally, but as you do things wrong, and we're going to talk about it more in detail soon, as you do things wrong, uh, as a punishment, God made it hard for him to change his mind or made it very difficult for him to change his mind as a punishment for the bad that he had done. But originally, he had free choice. Maimonides asks, though, another question. This is asked, actually, by many Jewish thinkers. Many, many years earlier, 400 years before the Exodus, God tells Abraham, your children will be enslaved in a strange land, and they will... Um, and I will punish the people who enslave them, and then they will go free. So Maimonides asks the obvious question. If the Egyptians were arguing before God in court, if they needed to defend themselves before God, they'll say, you predicted this. You said that we were going to enslave the people. We were supposed to do it. right? God had predicted to Abraham that the Egyptians would enslave Israel. And make life hard for them. So the Egyptians could say, it wasn't really our fault. It's God's fault. We're not really at fault. We were supposed to do it. God instructed us to do it, or God made us do it. So Maimonides asks this question, which really raises the general question of free choice. What does free choice mean? Do we believe in free choice? And more importantly, there's a number of problems um, theological, philosophical um, problems with free choice. And, um, and, our, our, uh, and, the tar and in Judaism, we deal with free choice extensively. So I'm going to try to cover a little bit of the Jewish discussion on free choice, on the belief of free choice. And um, this is, I think this is the most common question I get in classes. This, together with the question of theodicy, which is the bad things happen, why do bad things happen to good people, are the two most common questions that I get. And uh, so the, it's a very, very important question. Um, I get it all the time. And for some reason, no matter how many times we address it, we still keep getting the question. <laughs> so, but it's important to address. And it's an easier question to deal with than theodicy, than why bad things happen to good people. I'm going to try to address it. So <coughs> firstly, does Judaism believe in free choice? So while scripture and Talmudic writings, scripture is our early writings, cover the early Jewish writings. Um, one of our classes that we're planning is a class on the 
kind of history of Jewish scholarship. That scripture covers the early times from the days of Moses, going for about um, a thousand years until the um, end of the Persian period, beginning of until um, about 300 BC. So it goes for it covers about a th- period of about a thousand years of scripture, in, um, and then from the from then until about um, 500 CE, period of about 800 years or so. We have what we call the Talmudic period, um, kind of similar to the, what they would call the classical period in history, the Greek-Roman period. That's the Talmudic period. Um, and then we have later writings after that. So now in Torah and in the Talmud, it does mention free choice mo- many times, but it doesn't deal with the philosophy behind, philosophical questions behind free choice at all. While other philosophical questions are dealt with, both in scripture and the Talmud, the question of theodicy, of why bad things happen to good people, is discussed in the Torah already. We have a whole book in scripture, the book of Job, that deals with it exclusively. It's discussed extensively in the Talmud and in Midrash and in other writings, ancient writings. The question of free choice is not really discussed in great detail. But it is mentioned many times. The Torah says... Um, clearly in the Torah, Moses tells them at the end of the Torah, well, at the end of the Torah, see, I have placed before you life and death, choose life. And um, a number of times Moses mentions this concept, um, you were given choice, choose the right thing. And it's up to you to choose. And he mentions this, cho- this concept of choosing, everybody should choose the right thing. Multiple times it's mentioned in the Torah, it's mentioned in scripture, though not analyzed or discussed, but the concept is mentioned multiple times. The Talmud also, in many, many places, speaks of choice, of the fact that we have the right to choose. We could choose what we want to do. The first Jewish thinker to actually address the question of the principle of free choice and how important is it in Judaism is Rav Sadia Gaon. Rav Sadia Gaon uh, lived in the 900s in um, in Baghdad, in Iraq, which was then the, still the Jewish center, center of Jewish life. And um, most Jews lived in that area. And Rav Sadia Gaon was one of our, um, was one of, at least in that period, one of our earliest Jewish philosophers. And he was the first one who really wrote a, a book exclusively dedicated to Jewish philosophy. And so in his book, Emunos Fideos, he actually deals with this question of free choice. And he, mentioned, he says free choice is a basic principle in Jewish belief. We believe that every person can choose, right or wrong. And it is totally up to you. You have the, total, you have the ability to choose. Nobody else can make you choose. And that's a basic belief in Jewish belief. And it's really basic to every religious belief. And he explains a number of reasons why we must believe in free choice. For one, is um, theological. If you believe that God gave us commandments and has expectations of us, then we have to have the ability to follow through on those commandments. He cannot have expectations of us if we don't have the choice which way we want to choose. So we must, if we believe that God gave us commandments, we must have the choice whether we want to follow those commandments or not. 
Yes. So there's a number of questions, philosophical questions of free choice, and I'm going to deal with them in a moment. I'm going to soon list the questions, and then we'll deal with them one by one. I'm going to try to make them clarify, because it could get very confusing. So I'm going to try to make it very clear. So, but first we're going to deal with the question of, is there free choice? Rav Sajagon says, there absolutely must be free choice. It's a basic Jewish principle. God cannot give us commandments, and then not give us the ability to choose to do them. We must have free choice. Furthermore, he says, it's clear in the Torah, it says many times, choose, I place before you good and bad, choose. Obviously, you have free choice. It's very clear from Scripture you have free choice. Furthermore, reward and punishment, which I think we spoke, we did a class about some time ago. Reward and punishment, divine reward and punishment, that is, is central to Jewish belief. So is court-administered reward and punishment mentioned many times in the Torah. You cannot reward somebody or punish somebody for an action that they had no choice to do. If it wasn't my fault, how do you punish them? I couldn't control my, it was God did it to me. Or, what if, or it's natural, whatever it is. If it's not your choice, how can you be rewarded for it or punished for it? So because we believe in reward and punishment, it's a fundamental Jewish belief and mentioned many times in scripture, the only way you could justify reward and punishment is by choice, by believing in choice. And in fact, every religious belief would have to believe in free choice. If you believe that God has, if you believe in God, and Judaism is built on a number of core principles, um, but if you believe that there is a creator of the universe and a creator that is actively involved in our universe and communicates with us, has communicated with us. These are all fundamental beliefs. Without all these beliefs, religion would fall apart and each one needs a class for itself. You believe God communicates with us and has given us specific instructions and has expectations of us, then you, you would, it would have to follow through that he then gives us the option to fill those expectations or not. So it's a basic belief of any, it's a basic principle of any religious belief would be the belief in free choice. Those are the words of Rav Sajagom. This, this concept of, this, this um, principle of Rav Sajagom, that we believe in free choice, is accepted by almost every Jewish philosopher um, throughout um, all, of our, all of our early Jewish philosophers and later Jewish philosophers. Almost everyone accepts this basic principle. It's so obvious. Judaism could not exist if you didn't believe in free choice. It also is mentioned in the Torah. You couldn't have the principle of reward and punishment without it. You need to have it. Maimonides is very adamant that it's a principle in Judaism. Uh, Rabbi Nebuchadnezzar Im Pekuda, another great Jewish thinker, is adamant that it's a principle in Judaism. Um, essentially, every major Jewish scholar um, believes that it's a, uh, it's a principle in Judaism. Almost every major Jewish scholar. So what about the there is at least one medieval scholar, Rabbeinu. <laughs> <laughs> there is at least one medieval scholar, Rabbeinu Chistai Kraskis, right. who was a rabbi in Barcelona in the 1300s, who actually did not believe in free choice. And I should point out he lived in Christian Spain, in a time where there were, in the 1300s, where there were both Christian and Muslim um, thinkers um, in the Middle Ages that also questioned free choice. And he says that there's no such thing as free choice. Um, everything is predetermined. 
and you can't really choose. How then can God give you instructions? He gives you instructions in order as part of the as part of the factors to get you to do the right thing. In other words, you don't really choose, but whatever you do is based on different factors. If whatever you do is based on different factors, God's instructions is going to be a factor in getting you to do the right thing. And he explains reward and punishment in the same way. Reward and pun doesn't mean that you deserve the reward. Punishment doesn't mean you deserve the punishment. Rather, reward and punishment <laughs> are simply factors in making you do the right thing, getting you to do the right thing. But it, you actually, if you get punished, it wasn't really your fault that you did the wrong thing. It was factors beyond your control. But the punishment serves as a factor to help you do the right thing. Now, it's a unique view, and there are um, definitely other philosophers that believe that, both within Judaism and in other um, Jewish uh, uh, in other religions. Um, it's unique. There was a whole uh, Muslim cult, I forget what it was called, that did not believe in Judaism, in free choice at all, um, but in Maimonides' time that he speaks about. But <laughs> generally, um, it's a stretch. It's definitely a stretch to say that. And it would definitely be very unfair to think that God punishes you. Um, and just because the punishment was a factor in getting you to do the right thing. But when you're actually getting punished after you do the wrong thing, you didn't, don't really deserve it. It wasn't really your fault. Right? It's hard to wrap our minds around. So um, it's fair to say that it's almost unanimous in Jewish thought, um, and really in all theological thought, that human beings have free choice. It's an almost unanimous belief. And uh, so now there's a number of problems with free choice. And I'm going to try to break them up into a couple different things. One problem is a um, physics problem. And this is essentially the problem of determinism. In other words, if you believe um, that everything, or reductionism it's called, if you believe that everything in this world simply works with physics, and everything is predictable, and there's no, including, our own, including the movements of our own brains and our own minds, there's no free choice. That's one problem. The next problem is a, um, the next problem is a psychological problem, which is, um, which is the human mind, thinking of the human psyche. The, the human psyche, are we re do we really have choice to do what we want? Or are there all sorts of determining factors based on our genetic makeup, based on our experience, our environment, that causes us to do different things? Now, the other, those are, those are non-religious, not, not necessarily religiously related. There are then a number of religious problems with free choice. Firstly, and perhaps the most common one that people ask is, um, uh, <coughs> is related to God's um, knowing everything. We believe God knows everything, including the future. If God knows what you're going to do, and this is essentially Maimonides' question with regard to the Egyptians, if God knows what you're going to do, how can you have free choice? He already knows. The next problem, um, again, philosophically is, uh, theologically, is if God is all-powerful, we believe God is all-powerful, nothing in this world can go against God, how can God allow you to choose to 
do the wrong thing. If he's allowing you to do it, then it must be right. After all, God is all-powerful. How can you go against God? The third question, um, theologically, which is perhaps the most difficult one, is a question of um, God's involvement in this world, which is if God is in control of everything, and we believe, and we'll soon talk about that belief, that God is all not just all-powerful, but is in control of everything that happens in this world. If he's in control of everything that happens, that we turn to him for everything and rely on him for everything, then how then can, um, how then can we have free choice? After all, God's in total control. And this is very important um, theologically to understand um, who is to blame for suffering. Whose fault is it that the Jews were, the Hebrews were enslaved in Egypt. Is it God's fault or is it the Egyptians' fault? Who's at fault? Or who's at fault for the Holocaust? Is it God's fault? Now, if God's at fault, you run into a whole different question of how God could allow such a thing. That's a whole different question. But who's at fault? Who's to blame? Is God to blame or are the Nazis to blame? So, and this is with anything, anything that happens. Who's to blame? The perpetrator, the person who caused it, or God? Who do you blame for? So <coughs> the question is, who's in control? Is God in control, or are we in control? And how do we mesh the two things? So let's deal with these issues one by one. And uh, if there's any questions, are there any other questions on, before I go further, on free choice that I did not cover? Okay. Oh, I want to see if there's any questions that I'm, I'm missing. There are a lot more questions, but I'm trying to simplify it. Is the victim at fault? That's a whole different question. That's a very good question, so, but it, it raises a whole different question of um, blame. and it's, it's a philosophical question that's really a topic for itself. Okay. So... So let's start with the first question, which is a physics question, determinism. So in the 19th century, many scientists were amazed. They kept discovering that things that they never understood how they worked, they were soon learning more and more reasons or explanations as to how our world worked. So in other words, they were building microscopes. They were able to see things on a very, very small level. They were able to see... Um, um, uh, the nucleus of an atom, they were able to see how things were structured. And they were learning um, basic physics, and suddenly a lot of things that they just took for granted, they could actually understand how it worked. And that was also in the, in the, in, in the human body or in biology in general. We understood how animals worked, how bodies worked, how biology worked. We were getting more and more and more sophisticated. So many... 19th century scientific philosophers thought, well, if we keep working out more and more and more, chances are that everything can then be, has an explanation. Everything can be determined. We can understand everything. And, in, and therefore, we can theoretically at least reach a point where we know every single piece where it is and every single piece of physics, every single piece of matter where it is and how it works, 
and we could then determine everything that will ever happen. And this was called determinism or reductionism. If we know where everything is at all times, we can uh, re uh, deduce where everything actually is from the uh, from uh, from knowing where from knowing everything's position. That was a common 19th century scientific belief. Um, they hadn't reached there yet, but they thought we just we're, we're discovering so much. They thought we will soon get there. Right? The problem is, well, the problem was that the fact that you know that you're working things out on a macro level doesn't mean that on the micro level things will actually all make that much sense. And <clears throat> what happened is in the early 20th century or later, um, um, closer to the mid 20th century, as we got better and better, and as we understood more and more things, we began to discover that there are many things that actually don't make that much sense, especially on the micro, micro level, on the smallest micro levels. And we discovered that um, when you get to the, um, when you get to the finest points of how things work, a lot of things appear to be random and don't appear to be predictable. And there appears to be within our, and those very, very small micro random things, of course, over the big picture, end up causing macro unpredictabilities over the long term. So while on the bigger picture, things look very organized, but when you get down to the very bottom of it, things are actually not that organized. So today, the pr prevalent view in in the scientific world, although I don't think it's unanimous, is that um, is that determinism no longer exists. That there are certain ran there's some randomness in our world or some unpredictability. So our world is not entirely predictable. When you get to the human mind, though, it's still debated as to exactly. Nobody knows yet how the human mind works. They're still trying to uncover. Uh, we've managed to map out the brain, and we still don't fully understand exactly how the human mind works. Um, and there doesn't appear <clears throat> at least to be any hard evidence that every decision a person ever makes can be predicted based on their current brain structure um, or based on their brain structure together with all the experiences they're ever going to experience <clears throat> also doesn't seem to be predictable. So as of now, um, we actually, determinism, while it was a very strong belief in the 19th century, is no longer widely believed. Uh, that everything, although some do still believe in it, that everything can be determined. And it's fair to say that we don't know how the mind works or how people make decisions. Uh, ultimately, what makes your final decision? And so um, it's fair to say that there's an I there somewhere, a consciousness that we will call the soul for argument's sake, and um, <coughs> that actually makes those, deci those final decisions and uh, isn't um, forced to do so by any, um, by any other factors. Which would mean that everybody would have, from a physics perspective, everybody would have free choice. It definitely is possible. Now, it could be some people will, um, some scientists will debate that, but there's no question that there's definitely room for possibility from a basic scientific perspective that people do have free choice. Determinism is no longer the dominant belief. Then you run, though, into a psychological problem. Is that, like, before I run to the next one, is, uh, is that, does anyone have any questions or comments? No. Okay. And then we run into a psychological well, issue. There's also a theory that, that helps make sense 
idea of non-determinism is not unanimous. I, I mentioned that. It's not unanimous, but it's fairly accepted. Right. In other words, there's an I, there's a consciousness that a person has that makes the final decision of what you're going to do. Right? That would be the basic belief of free choice. means I, whoever that I is, we'll call it a soul, you could call it con uh, consciousness, whatever you want to call it. There's, a, there's an I in there that's making the final call, which, what you're going to do. That would be the belief of free choice. Right? Now, as far as we know scientifically today, we have not disproven that such a thing exists. Yeah, so, and there's no reason scientifically to not believe in such a thing. So it's, it's fairly acceptable from a physics perspective. I'm going to get into the psychological question in a moment. Yes? But even if you follow the science, the body may be prevented by carrying out the decision. That could well be. There's a lot of things we want to do and we cannot do. It happens all the time. So that means that free choice, if free choice is a soul, and not necessarily a soul consciousness. Excellent point. So... Let's move on to the next one, which is, um, which is um, sci the psychological question. So what we've discovered, people do all sorts of strange things. Um, that's human beings. People do strange things. But psychology has made, quite, um, has made um, great strides over the last 100 years. And what we've learned is that a lot of people's actions are, and decisions are actually fairly predictable based on their, the makeup of their brain, based on the chemical mix in their brain, based on, um, based on um, external factors, experiences they've had. People get, um, and people respond to different things in different ways, often in fairly predictable ways. So it appears, at least from a psychological perspective, that we are actually greatly influenced. Our decisions are greatly influenced by factors around us. And the truth is, although psychology has made it perhaps a lot easier for us today to see um, how, how and why people do things, um, there was always, it was always clear throughout history that people respond to the world around them. That was always very clear. It was always very clear that if you were going to raise somebody in a, in a good family where they're instilled with good values, going to good schools, they will probably turn out to be, and assuming that their brain itself is structured in a light where they kind of follow what they're supposed to do, um, they will probably end up doing what they're, the right things. If somebody's raised in a bad environment, in a bad family, bad schools, bad role models, chances are they'll end up doing bad things. That didn't, that's something that we always knew to be true, right? We knew it to be true so much so that we worked so hard to raise our children in the right environment because we know that to be true. So it was, oh, there was never a question, there was never a doubt that factors in our life, in other words, factors... Um, both internal and external, are responsible for, or ha are important, uh, things that happen in our life, sorry, or in ourselves, are factors in our decision making. There was no question about that. Certain people are tempted to do certain things. 
or driven to do certain things. There was never a question about that. What we've managed to do with, um, in psychology is we've managed to have a better understanding of those factors. And a lot of things that we were unaware of them being factors, we now understand they actually are factors. All sorts of things. But we, we always had this idea. There are a lot of factors in people's decision making, both internal and external, that are out of our control. We cannot control the factors that push us in different directions. And that was always clear. It was always very clear that people are somewhat predictable based on, um, based if you know what's driving them, you know how their mind works, and you know, and you know their environment, and you know what triggers them. You, people be, turn out to be somewhat predictable. We always knew that. that that's nothing new. Free choice doesn't, the belief in free choice doesn't negate that whatsoever. We know that a lot of people's choices are based on different factors, both internal and external. Free choice, however, believes that despite those internal and external factors, we get the final say. So yes, there are things pushing us in one direction. There are things pushing us in another direction. Sometimes the factors pushing us to one side is much stronger than factors pushing us to another side. Often it's like that. In most things, we're being pushed to make a decision one way or another. And there's no question that even things like reward and punishment are factors in our decision making. But ultimately, we get the final decision. Free choice means that, yes, there is some level predictability, but it is not total predictability. In other words, we are making the final decision. Right? Or you, would, you could have a statistician who would tell you that um, people's reactions, people's actions, if they're, you know, say, um, predicting the economy or whatever else it is, people's actions are largely predictable. In other words, most of the time, um, uh, polls are true. What is it? 90% of the 90% of the time they're true. Um, that's a good poll, right? Has 90% accuracy. So 90% of the time, whatever you predict, <coughs> you, if you know all the factors and you have enough information, you can predict what a person will decide. Why? Because nine out of 10 people in that situation will decide this. But ultimately, it's the individual themselves who's making that decision. You could decide to do otherwise. You could decide not to follow all those factors and do something else and do something irrational. And there's always that um, unpredictability within human behavior. So no matter how much of it is predictable, it's not 100% predictable. There is always some part that is unpredictable, which is up to the individual themselves. We never know what that person's final decision is going to be. Because it's up to you to make your decision. So free choice doesn't negate that there are many factors pushing us in different directions. And therefore, because we believe that there are factors pushing us in different directions, we believe that we have to do our utmost to improve our environment or whatever else it is to ensure that we have factors pushing us or our children or whatever else we have influence on in the right direction. We definitely want to create the factors that they should push us in the right direction, make our decisions easier. But even so, everybody ultimately is responsible for their own decision. And for that reason, if a person grew up <clears throat> or was in a position where all the factors were pushing them to do something wrong, 
And then they went ahead and did something wrong. So although, to some extent, all those factors are somewhat responsible, the ultimate responsibility lies with the person themselves. And our entire justice system works on that premise. In other words, if you commit a crime, despite all the mitigating factors that led you to the crime, you are still guilty. Now, maybe we won't punish you as severely since it was very difficult for you to make the right decision. So we could take mitigating factors into consideration when giving you a punishment. But you are still guilty for the crime. So you make the final decision even though there are other factors causing you um, or leading you to make towards certain decisions. Yes? Now, some of that may be due to other determining factors, perhaps the way their mind is structured, role models they've seen in their lives. Some of that is somewhat predictable, but it's not always predictable, right? People can always choose to do otherwise. Right? So you always have that option of choosing to do otherwise. So now we move on to, before I move on, go ahead. It won't make them innocent. No. It will change the way we punish them. But they're, they, they're still guilty. Unless it was beyond your control totally. Um, if you had control over what happened, if it was your decision, then you are responsible. Even if all sorts of factors led you to that decision, you are still 100% responsible and you are guilty. Now, maybe we won't punish you as severely because we because of whatever factors pushed you and it was very, you were in a very difficult situation. But the guilt is the same. Mental illness is also a mitigating factor. It well, depends. There's different types of mental illness. There's mental illness that could be a mitigating factor, but you, were still, you still had enough control to make your own decisions. There's mental illness where a person is psychotic, where they no longer have control of their decisions. Right? Yes, John? No, God told him to. God told Jacob to go to Egypt. He was explicitly told, but that wasn't something bad they chose. No, God didn't want them to. They weren't punished for not sta for staying in Egypt. They would have been going against God's instructions. God wanted them to be slaves. Oh, yeah. yeah. Our, our, our issue with free choice that we brought up before was Pharaoh. Why are the Egyptians being punished? What did they do wrong? There's no question that God, why God wanted the Hebrews to suffer brings up the question of why bad things happen to good people, which is a whole different topic. But it's also free choice. They, were, they weren't stuck there. Hashem put them right, they did not have choice not to be there. They were, they were made to be there, absolutely. They did not have free choice. 
about whether they should be there. We're talking about free choice about doing right and wrong. We're not talking about free choice as to where you are. We're talking about choice as to doing right and wrong. They didn't do anything wrong. So they were looking for the truth? Yeah. Sure, they didn't do anything wrong. Why they were enslaved has nothing to do with anything wrong they did. They were enslaved because they were enslaved. Why God allowed for that is a whole question of why bad things happen to good people. But we're talking about people who do things wrong and are then punished for it like the Egyptians. That's our discussion for today. But God ordered that. And Correct. It's going to happen. Correct. So, that, so now we get on to the next, you're, you're talking about with regard to the Egyptians. So... So now we get on to the theological questions. Right, but we're not we're not claiming at any moment that Israel that the Hebrews had free choice as to whether they wanted to be in Egypt or not. They did not. They did not. We're not talking about free choice with regard to the Hebrews. We're talking about free choice with regard to the Egyptians. They're the ones that we're claiming had free choice, evidenced by the fact that they're punished. You can only, by definition, be punished if you had choice. According to most. <laughs> According to most, besides Rechastai Kraskis, yes. Okay, so we're going to get now to the theological questions. Excellent question. So um, let's get to the theological questions. The first one, and the most common one, and the easiest one to deal with, is the question of God's knowledge. So um, we believe um, that God knows everything. He knows the past, present, and future. Is aware of everything, and this is mentioned in Scripture, that God sees what's inside everyone's heart. He knows what's going to be. We find predictions by prophets. It's clear God knows what's going to happen. And with regard to Egypt, we know God told Abraham, your descendants will be slaves in a land that is, in, in, a, in another land, to say which one, but in another land, and they will then come, and I will punish those people. So the question is, if the question is, if God knows about it, you don't really have choice. If he knows what you're going to do, do or do you, can you have choice? So Maimonides actually asks this question. He says, the answer to this question is wider than the la longer than the land and wider than the sea and uh, too difficult to answer. He doesn't bother answering this question. Why he didn't bother answering this question when it has a very simple answer, we don't know. It's commentary's debate as to why Maimonides avoided the question. What's the question again? How we can, um, how how we can have free choice if God knows what we're going to choose. But, but the big question is God. We're going to get to the other questions in a moment. We're going to get to the other questions in a moment. We're dealing with one question at a time. We're trying to keep this very structured. No, we're keeping this very structured. Let's please let's let's do this one. Stephen, we have to do this one at a time or everyone's going to get confused, okay? So we're dealing with how the question theologically. We dealt with determinism. We dealt with um, the, um, uh, we dealt with the, um, the psychological question. 
now dealing with the question, the, the first theological question, can God, we have free choice if God knows what we're going to choose? That's the question we're dealing with now. So um, all, uh, many other Jewish thinkers bring up this question, including Rabbi Yehuda Halevi in his famous book, Kuzari, and um, many others. And they answer uh, pretty much all the same thing. It's, and this is a pretty straightforward answer. When I know what you are doing, right? I only know things that you are doing now or that you did previously. I don't know what you're going to do. I cannot predict the future. I know what you have done. What's the cause and what's the result? In other words, there's always one thing's the cause and one thing, or in Hebrew we have siba and misuba. One thing's the cause, one's the result. I know what you did. Why do I know what you did? You did it. As a result of you doing it, I now know that you did it, right? Your actions are the cause. My knowledge is a result of your actions, right? So now, it's impossible to know what somebody is going to do. Here's why, from a very basic philosophical reason. So it's impossible to know what somebody is going to do. Why? Because there's a basic philosophical principle that the cause must always precede the result. Right? To put it in philosophical terms, a child can never be older than their parent. Right? Because the cause must always precede the result. For that reason, it's impossible to ever know what someone is going to do. Because what they did is the cause, what your knowledge is the result. The result of what they did. Right? Because the cause can't come before the result. You cannot ever know what someone is going to do. It's impossible. Right? Or unless you have predetermined factors and then it's not their actions that are the cause, it's the predetermined factors that are the cause. Right. But if someone does something assuming that they have free choice or whatever it is, there's no way you can ever know what they're going to do before they do it because their doing it is the cause of your knowledge. Now, we believe that God, who is beyond time and all-knowing, knows not only what happened, but also knows what will happen. In other words, what we're saying is that God is beyond that basic philosophical rule. God doesn't work within the rules of nature or within the rules of basic logic and philosophy. And therefore, in God's world, right, God's result can precede the cause. God's knowledge can precede you actually doing it. But that doesn't change the cause and result. The cause is still your actions. He knows what you did or what you will do. What's the cause? Your actions are the cause. The result is God's knowledge. He knows it because of what you are doing. Now, it just so happens that it's something that doesn't make any sense that he knows it before you did it or the result is there before the cause. Doesn't make any sense. Can't happen in our world. Can't happen in our reality. God's beyond that reality. So he can know what you're going to do, the result, before you do it. Beyond time. Doesn't make sense to us. We can't understand it. But accepting that God is all-knowing, which is impossible in this world, accepting that God knows the future, which is impossible in this world, would also accept that his knowledge of the future is a result of what we're doing rather than the cause of what we're doing. 
Now, if God tells that future to somebody else, say to Abraham, your descendants are going to be slaves in a land that is not theirs for 400 years. Again, God's telling to Abraham. The fact that Abraham now knows it is a result of God telling him, which is a result of what actually happened. Right? Now, it just so happens that because God is beyond the whole system, Abraham's knowledge is now from something that doesn't really belong in our world. Right? The fact that something's going to happen. But it doesn't cause it to happen. It's all a result of what actually ended up happening later. Why did God tell Abraham? That's an excellent question. Um, why did God tell Abraham what's going to happen? Or why does God tell us in ever what's going to happen? Um, each time God does it for different reasons. Um, for th there's obviously some purpose. God at the time was making a covenant with Abraham, which was, I'm giving you this land. However, it's not coming at no cost. Here's what it's going to cost you. So he's giving him full knowledge of the deal. I'm giving the, you this land. I'm going to choose your descendants as my chosen people. They're making a deal. But they're going to have to go through this slavery first. Abraham says, fine, no problem. He's in. So, um, so that's why God told him in advance what's going to happen. But it's all a result of what ends up happening, not the cause of what God ends up happening. God knew he was going to say those, those things, right? Sorry? God knew he was going to agree with that. But again, a result of him saying that. Yeah, it's, it's impossible in our reality to, no, to have a result precede the cause. It's impossible in our reality for such a thing to exist. It goes against basic, um, basic, a basic philosophical principle. It's, it's, an, it's an impossibility. We believe God is beyond that impossibility. Yes. Okay. Okay. Okay, I mean the idea is we are, time is one of the basic, um, one of the basic limitations of our world or one of the basic dimensions our world lives in. We can't really deal with a reality that's beyond time, that's not limited in the forward movement of time. Um, but in theory, if God is beyond time, then the whole problem doesn't exist for him. And if he could then communicate with us inside time, then he could also, like he did to Abraham, give him <coughs> foreknowledge of something that his knowledge of it is only a, a result of what comes later. Yes. So if you have to do something wrong, um, but God knows what's in the future, you're going to do the right thing. Is there guidance in that sense? 
Not necessarily. I mean, sometimes there. Sometimes uh, there's two different things. There's factors that lead you to do the right decision, uh, that make life easier for you. And we're, there's always different factors, and both we have to work to improve the factors in our decision making to make them better, and in people whose lives we have we're involved with, we could improve their decision making. And the same is also God sometimes works to make it easier for us. He also sometimes works to make it harder for us, putting us in difficult situations. Now, I'm going to move on. I'm not going to take questions right now because we still have two other theological problems <laughs> to deal with, and it's, we're already over a time. All right. So I'm going to try to do this very quickly. I don't want to keep you too long. So You could have predicted that. <laughs> <laughs> so our next, theological, our next theological problem is um, how can we do something against what God wants? How can God allow us to go against him? And so, in very short, really deserves a much longer answer. I'm going to try to do this really quickly. Um, in very short, God allows us to do bad in order to give us free choice. So in other words, he does not really want us to do bad, but he has chosen to allow us to do bad for the sake of giving us free choice. And the example would be, you put your kid into you, you, or you, the, the school, um, makes all the kids go and take a test. They don't want the kids to fail. In fact, if the kids fail, it reflects badly on the school, right? So they don't want the kids to fail. But, right, you've, the only way you can ever prove that they know the knowledge is if you give them the opportunity to fail and then have them pass. So without giving them the choices, right, you don't have the ability to prove that you could do the right thing or to do the right thing on your own. So therefore, God gives us choices and allows for us to fail, allows us for us to do bad things that he doesn't want us to do in order to give us the opportunity to make the right decision. So it's, if you will, a necessary evil. You can only have, make good decisions if there's an option of making bad decisions. So therefore, God allows for us to make bad decisions in order, for, in order to allow for us to make good decisions. That's hope, uh, hope, hope that's straightforward. It, it really requires a lot more um, talk, but I'm going to kind of keep it at that. Now let's deal as quickly as we can with the final problem that Stephen has brought up already multiple times today. And <laughs> is the most difficult of all the problems. And this is the question of God's control. We believe in Judaism that God is actively involved in our world and has control in our world. And there are many scriptural references to the fact that God is in control. It is not us, but it is God who does things. God makes things happen. Rely on God. Turn to God. Pray to Him. Tell Him what you need. God is taking care of us. He's the one making the decisions. If he's making decisions, how do we make decisions? So, Rabbeinu Machai in Pekuda says, there are essentially three ways we can respond. One way we can respond is that God is actually not in total control. God not being in total control, well, he doesn't get into detail. But others explain it could be God is only in control of the physics, 
but not in control of the human mind. So he controls everything that happens except for what humans do. And God has to factor in whatever humans do and what he decides. So he makes everything happen, and then people come and ruin it all, because we make our own decisions, essentially. That's, that's one philosophical perspective. Or some say that even within the human, what we do, a lot of things that we do, of course, we're not in control of either. A lot of the things that we do are due to not decisions that we make, but things that happen to us. Right? A lot of things that happen to us we're not in control of. And so ultimately, humans are only in control of some decisions they make, only in control, my money says, of decisions of good and bad. Decisions of what to wear that morning, you're not in control of, they're not good or bad, but decisions <laughs> of <laughs> decisions that, have, that involve good and bad, there God actually doesn't predetermine what you're going to decide at all gives you total free choice. That's one, one answer. The other answer suggests, says Rabbeinu Bachaya, is that ultimately we humans do not have free choice. That's the other answer, which we have already rejected before. <laughs> the third answer, he says, is, the third answer, he says, is that it's a paradox. It makes no sense. On the one hand, we believe that God is in control, on the other hand, we believe that we can make decisions. And it's a paradox. It makes no sense. We cannot understand it. Only God understands how that works. Because we have two conflicting beliefs, that God is inside controlling everything, and that we have free choice for our decisions, and the two beliefs contradict each other. Either we decide or God decides. And so only God knows how that paradox works. He's infinite. He can make two opposite things work at the same time. We have no, that doesn't make any sense to us. We just don't understand it. However, however, I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to leave you at that. No, I will not leave you at that. Other, other philosophers, most notably Maimonides, do explain the difference. And before I get to what Maimonides explains, um, before I get to exactly how he explains it, um, I just want to add to the question a little bit. In um, Jewish philosophy, there's in general debates as to how much God is in control, and we did a class on this a few months ago. And we spoke about the um, general Jewish consensus that God has absolute control over everything in our world, every single thing that moves, is predetermined by the creator. And we spoke then about how we are essentially figments of God's imagination. Does anyone remember that? Yep. Yes? We spoke about how we're really figments of God's imagination or um, <laughs> actors in his play and whatever, or as we described it then, <laughs> um, software in his program. And, um, <laughs> and essentially... He's programming everything at every single moment and programming it into place, the master programmer. We are whatever he makes us be. He stops making us be that, we're, we are not that. We, whatever we're doing, he's making us be that at that very moment, which as we described it then would mean that if someone shoots somebody, God is putting everything there at that moment, the person, the gun, the bullet as the bullet flies through the air it's all god it's, it's all part of remember it's like it's it's his software right if you have a you shoot someone in a uh, in a computer game the software is programmed 
to have the person there, the gun there, the bullet there, the speed of the bullet, it's all pre-programmed, right? In the software, right? So the program, the software is all, it's all pre-programmed, right? The software could make the bullet suddenly stop if it wants to, right? If the programmer wanted to, uh, it could do anything, right? So God is programming everything. So this only enhances that question of how can we have free choice if everything is predetermined by God? So, and Maimonides raises this question, particularly with regard to Pharaoh, as you mentioned originally, ultimately, if God wanted them to be slaves, and he wanted them to be slaves in Egypt, and this is all part of the grand plan, and what do you expect from Pharaoh? He was supposed to enslave the people, even if he didn't know about what God told Abraham, because as we said, that was just the result of what ended up happening. But God is still, Pharaoh is supposed to enslave the people, that's what God wants him to do. How can you blame Pharaoh? So Maimonides explains that the problem is not what happens. What actually happens is all predetermined by God. God determines everything that will happen. We believe in everything ultimately being determined by the Creator. However, determinism, if you will. However, however, God does not control our decision making. He controls all of physics, but not our consciousness, not our soul. Our soul can make decisions independent of God. He controls all of reality, all of physics, everything that exists in this world does not control our own consciousness. Our own consciousness, we make our own decisions. Now, if God controls everything, then let's say we make a bad decision. I want to do something wrong right now. Now, God is all-knowing and, of course, knows my decisions as I make them. Right? Now, God, as the master programmer, can choose. Right? Like the programmer who's programming the computer game. Right? He can choose to let my decision follow through and go ahead with it. He can choose for my decision not to follow through. He could choose for me to shoot the gun and the gun jam. He could choose for me to shoot. The programmer, if he wills, can choose for the bullet to go all the way and then stop right beforehand, right before it hits the person. Or to go straight through the person and not affect them whatsoever, right? The, the programmer in a computer game. Right? You could choose anything, right? God also has a, um, we spoke about this also when we had that class. God has a structure he doesn't like to break the structure and uh, uh, laws a uh, physics structure a natural structure he doesn't usually break so he'll usually if he wants to stop you he'll come up with another way of stopping you but he's ultimately in control of everything except for your decisions you're in control of your decisions how those decisions follow through is god's choice so you could decide to do something horrible if god doesn't want you to do it you're not going to do it you could decide to do something wonderful. God doesn't want you to do it. You're not going to do it. So you make your decisions. And God rewards and punishes you for your decisions. So did God want Pharaoh to enslave the people? Yes. Did God want the Egyptians to enslave the people? Yes. Did, was that part of his plan? Yes. Did Pharaoh have to do it? Pharaoh did not have to make the decision to enslave the people. It was his decision. What would God have done had Pharaoh said, I'm not doing it. I am not going to enslave this people. I will not cause them any harm. What would God have done then? 
God would have come up with another plan, plan B. Plan B. So Maimonides asked that question, how could God pardon Pharaoh's heart? God only pardoned Pharaoh's heart after what he did. And here's what happened. I know I'm well over time. I hate going over time. But um, I want to just resolve this quickly. Let me, I'm going to get to your question in just a moment. But So who's to blame? Who's to blame for their slavery? Or who's to blame for the Holocaust? God or Hitler? God or Pharaoh? Who's to blame? So the answer is both. Both are to blame. Both are to blame. God is to blame for the result. Pharaoh is to blame for the decision. God is to blame for the result. Hitler is to blame for, and all those Nazis, are to blame for the decision. God is ultimately blamed for the result. And how God deals with that blame is a discussion for itself. We've spoken about it before here, uh, but maybe we've got to discuss it again. Uh, but the individual, the perpetrator, is blamed not for the result, which they don't have ultimate control over. They're blamed, though, for the decision. Sandy, just to finish off, Sandy had an excellent question, which is how did God harden Pharaoh's heart? Right? So although God and someone earlier asked um, about, Robert asked earlier about, um, about Adam and Eve, had it, Adam made the original bad decision to eat from the original sin, and um, what would God have done had Adam chosen not to eat the fruit? He would have been in trouble, right? His whole plan would have got him messed up, right? What would God have done? So here we go back to what we said earlier in our second question, um, our, um, our psychological question. We mentioned that there are all sorts of factors that push you into your decision. Now, God is in control of those factors. So God actually pushes you into your decision, creates factors to push you into different decisions. In fact, God created a factor to push Adam into his decision. Now, Adam's ultimately to blame. So he could have said no. What God would have done, he would have to go on to plan B. But, but God did create the factors on the ground to push Adam into that decision. He also created factors to push Pharaoh into his decision. What God does is, as you do bad, God makes it harder and harder and harder for you to do the right thing. The more bad you do, the more you're stuck in a criminal gang, the harder it's going to be to get out. You could always make the right decision. You're responsible for every decision that you make. But it gets harder and harder and harder and harder and harder. And that's what happened with Pharaoh. God, because Pharaoh was so deeply sunken into his evil ways, it became harder and harder and harder and harder and harder for Pharaoh to get out. The more bad decisions he made, the more difficult it was for him to change his life. And so that's how God hardened Pharaoh's heart. But that all comes, if somebody's in a gang, and they commit a murder, and they say, well, it wasn't my fault that I committed a murder. If I wouldn't have committed that murder, I would have been killed by my fellow gang members. It's not my fault. Right? Would that be a good defense? No, he shouldn't be in the gang to start with, right? So the original, maybe smaller crime that gradually led to the larger crime, the fact that you were in a position that pushed you very strongly to commit the final crime doesn't make you, doesn't absolve you because of all the other bad decisions that were made along the way. And the same thing happens with Pharaoh, essentially. That as he made worse and worse and worse decisions, God hardens his heart, makes it harder and harder and harder and harder for him to change his mind. But he could have always changed his mind. He ultimately always had free choice until the end. 
What would have happened if he would have said after plague number three, I'm letting him go. What would God have done then? God would have had to move to plan B. What would plan B? Maybe Pharaoh would have dropped dead and another Pharaoh would have come in his place. God could have come up with another plan, right? Had he wanted to, right? God is, has no shortage of plans in his infinite wisdom. But ultimately, we believe God is in absolute control. We only control the, um, we only control 